you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, you're going to kind of have your finger in there, and then we're going to go to some other texts of Scripture. Uh, we're going to actually move around the Scripture a lot today. Uh, but a couple things I really want to start off with as we begin this new year. Have you ever wondered what it would look like to come into the perfect church? You ever considered that? Like, what would that look like? If I walked in and this was the perfect church, whatever your definition is, would it be one that you could back up with Scripture? Would it be one that you would say, you know what, based on this text in the Bible, this is why I think this is the perfect church? Or would it be just merely an opinion of yours and mine? Something that we would prefer that church would have that we may not currently have. I hate to break it to you, there's no such thing as the perfect church. In fact, there has never been such a thing as the perfect church. If you do any research on the early church, you'll find that the problems that many churches face today, they faced back then. When you read the different letters of the Apostle Paul, you'll see that many of the things that he warned about are still going on today. Sexual immorality, prevalent in the church. People taking and being greedy with money, still in the church. People no longer caring for their neighbor, still in the church. All of the things that we're always constantly distracted by when it comes to the faith are still to be found in the church today. Back then, what we look at the, when we look at the New Testament, we get a little confused sometimes. We assume that they're the template and they had it all together. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, one of the things that I think is very distracting for many of us is we look at the early church and think that was where it was at. If we just did it that way, that would always be perfect. And let me assure you that with the growth the early church experienced, I think a lot of churches would like to see that. What they probably didn't want to see and wouldn't want to see is all the problems that followed shortly after the church exploded. And that's some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. If you could define it, would it be biblical? If you could define the perfect church, would it be biblical? And I'd argue that most of us probably wouldn't be able to back a lot of the things that we would want to say about the perfect church biblically. Today we're going to start a series that I'm entitled, Church Done Right. Church Done Right. And we're going to look at what God says about what He expects when it comes to the church. We'll be looking at multiple passages, and we'll do, do our best to be clear from Scripture what I believe God expects from His church. We're going to be looking at what Jesus actually expected from those that were his disciples. Because remember, Jesus is the foundation for the church. Let's not forget this, believer. If Jesus is the foundation for the church, we want to make sure that we start with him. You don't start anything else. In fact, what we tend to do is we separate um, portions of Scripture when it comes to how we apply the Word of God. We tend to think, well, that was for them back then. A lot of those things still apply today, and we, need, we should not neglect to see that. So, the early church, did they have it together? Did they have it perfect, if you will? Oh, no, of course they didn't. And we, we see that clearly because there's judgment that is pronounced early on in the church. In fact, one of the first deacons starts a rift in the church itself, Nicholas. They pick Stephen and many others, and Nicholas, one of the first deacons, starts a split in the church and starts off the church into heresy. One of the things that I think we tend to not pay attention to enough is that God has certain requirements for the church 
and we as a church need to make sure that we're paying attention to them. So we're going to be looking at five different things that I believe are what a church ought to do, or a church done right, if you will. Number one, a church ought to be Christ-centered. Christ-centered. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Number two, the church needs to be repentant. Repentant. Number three, accountable. Accountable. Number four, serving. Serving. And number five, grounded. Number one, let's start off with Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Evangelion, which is what we call the gospel, William Tyndale said this, is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Believer, the reason why we have good news is because we have Christ. If we don't have Christ, there is no church, period. There's no church if you don't have Christ. There's no good news if you don't have Christ. Jesus, after his resurrection, connects the dots when it comes to what Scripture spoke of when it, when it referred to the Messiah and makes some important points that I think we should make sure not to, to, to miss when he establishes the book, um, in the book of Acts, the church itself. Let's look at the first text in Luke chapter 24. So you still have your place in Acts chapter 2, keep it there. But in Luke 24, 44 through 49, listen, listen to what Jesus says here. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with the power from on high. So Jesus is telling the disciples that each section of the Hebrew canon attested to his need to suffer from the, from the, and also rise from the dead. The Jewish people separated their canon into three sections. I don't know if you know this. They had the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the writings is what Psalms was a part of. The gospel, which is the good news that Jesus saves, is essentially a fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. We should make sure that we always remember that the gospel ultimately started with the Jewish people. It was given to the Jewish nation first, and it was given to the disciples to share with their people first and ultimately to the rest of the world. Remember, it started in Jerusalem, and then it spread to the rest of the world. Jesus took the time back in Luke to open their understanding, to the, the disciples' understanding, and he shared with them how all these things were a witness to a literal fulfillment of him coming to this earth, dying, rising from the dead, victorious. Remember, the disciples failed to understand what it was Jesus was doing on this earth when he was ministering with them. In fact, many times when Jesus was saying that I need to suffer and die, they didn't understand what he meant. They connected those dots only after his death. Jesus tells them that it's going to start in Jerusalem, but it's going to go to the rest of the world. And one of the things that, just as a practical note, if you want to reach people around the world, you need to start in your home city first. 
You should start where you're at first. A lot of people want to do the big, magnificent things for God, but they don't like to do the, let me talk to my neighbor first thing. You need to start there first. If you want to reach the rest of the world, you need to start with those that are closest to you first. Your Jerusalem, if you will. The Jewish people were a first priority, but that message was not exclusively for them. It was also for the rest of the world. In fact, we just talked about this during Christmas, right? The, sh- the shepherds hear the good news, great tidings, you know, of what? Great joy, good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, right? Because Jesus is born. Because of what these shep- uh, shepherds, back in Christmas mode, because of what these disciples had seen and heard directly from Christ, they were to share this good news of the gospel, but not until they waited for the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus tells them not to go out and minister until they had received power from on high, and that was the Holy Spirit. A very dangerous mistake that many churches make is trying to do ministry without the Holy Spirit. A lot of churches try to do a lot of things without the Holy Spirit, and it fails every time. It's outright scary how many, how many things the church attempts to do without the Holy Spirit's power. As Spurgeon once said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind or chariots without steeds. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. As an offering without the sacrificial flame, we are unaccepted. Look, church, we can't substitute the Holy Spirit for gimmicks in the church. We can't do that. Modern Christianity focuses on many of the wrong things as a priority over the Holy Spirit's work. In order to make Christ the priority, you need to make sure you're listening to what the Holy Spirit says, because the Holy Spirit's going to show you how valuable Jesus is. The Holy Spirit's the one that gave you eyes to see why Jesus is so valuable to begin with. You didn't wake up one morning and go, hey, you know what, I like this gospel idea. It doesn't happen to any of us. The Holy Spirit has to bring that to us. You see, media and presentation matters more than the Holy Spirit's work in many churches. And sadly, what ends up happening is the church is saturated with everything but the Holy Spirit. Those things should matter, but as a media-saturated society, that's not what we should be banking on to make the changes in our church. The worship experience matters more than the Holy Spirit's work in many churches. How someone feels when they come to church matters more than what the Holy Spirit is going to determine that day. The Holy Spirit, believer, may cause you to weep one day and rejoice the next. It's not just some template that a lot of us try to fit him into. You know what? Today, I don't want to hear anything about my sin. I want to just have a happy Sunday. So I'm going to go to church that's going to tell me how wonderful I am. Church, this is not what it's about. The Holy Spirit is the one that dictates the tone of the Word of God. Are there high points in the Word of God where you're just soaring like, you know what, rise with wings as eagles, right? And then you've got other verses that say, uh, a wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this death. You need both, believer. A lot of us like the good, encouraging, feel-good messages. What we don't like is the serious nature of sin and what God wants us to deal with. You see, 
what church turns into is a mode for just positive thinking many times. Just think better and you'll be better. Really, it's just the power of positive thinking wrapped into a Bible verse today. Church, we're not doing that. We need the Holy Spirit more than you need me to come up with this amazing template for you. The Holy Spirit's presence is so essential in our church. And let me tell you, church, if you're not in this, you're not going to have the Holy Spirit's presence. You're not going to sense what he says. You're not going to know where to go. There are many believers that try to live the spiritual walk without the Holy Spirit, and they fail miserably every time. And when they do succeed, it's a false success. You know why? Because quickly pride kicks in, and they drop again. Truth is, we all need the Holy Spirit to move in our church. Many churches try to evangelize, listen to this, without the Holy Spirit. And sadly believe they're doing so because the numbers go up, but they're not going up because of biblical reasons. They're going up because they've entertained people. What made me feel so good? I really felt it today. Believer, if that's what you think church is about, is just getting this euphoric feeling, you've got this all wrong. Does the Holy Spirit sometimes just encourage you with something? Absolutely. Are there other moments where you just feel crushed? Like, man, I am such a terrible, wicked sinner. I need to get this right before God. Yes. And you need to be able to distinguish between those things and know when it's the Holy Spirit and not just some emotional manipulation going on. My goal is not to take the Word of God and beat you with it. My goal is to present it and have the Holy Spirit do the work. What God wants you to do in your life, you ought to do. And here's the kicker. We're going to talk about this next week. When it comes to repentance, God is going to call all of us to repent in different areas. It isn't like, hey, I'm going to have you all repent of one area every time. There are different areas all of us struggle with, and what you struggle with is not going to be what the person next to you struggles with. Frankly, it could be a different struggle for you and your spouse, because God's Word is powerful enough to distinguish between people and say, hey, this is what this person needs, this is what this person needs. And that same text of Scripture can be applied differently to different people. God's Word doesn't change, but how He works in our lives is very different. And some of us are more in tune with what He says, and others are more apt to resist what he says. If teaching is tied to just making people feel good, much of Scripture must be reinterpreted. One of the saddest things that I think I've seen, and I've done this personally myself, I'll download different sermons from different preachers in the area. And I find the majority is always this upbeat, you're jolly good fella, you're going to do it, you're going to be fine, and I'm going, where's judgment in any of the sermons? What are they warning against in any of the sermons? Is there no hell to lose? Believer, you have people dying going to hell, and the church is all going, rah, 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 we're doing fine. That's not the word. That's not being accurate. Jesus spoke of hell more than heaven. It's not the message people want to hear in 2021. I get it. But you know what? The message has never changed. It's people that have adjusted the message. The Holy Spirit's role in the church is to make us more holy and conform to Christ. If the church is going in the opposite direction, it's not getting it right. Ask yourself, believer, is the church more pure now than it was 50 years ago in America? And I'm talking church in general. There's a lot of different denominations. I get it. 
Is the church more holy now than it was 50 years ago? Then what are we preaching? What are we teaching? If we're relying more on the flesh in the church, then the Holy Spirit's priority of making us more holy is going to be neglected. This is why, believer, godly leadership mattered in the Old Testament when it came to the kings, and it matters in the New Testament when it came to the elders in the church. Godly leadership matters. As I've said before, and it's very important to note, the Apostle Peter denied Christ three times in his presence. But guess what happened when he had the Holy Spirit? He became bold like you wouldn't believe. In fact, he literally went cutthroat on people right away. You murdered Jesus. Wow, there's some audacity, Peter. That's not exactly the encouraging Sunday sermon. Guess what happens? People get saved. Why? Because they realize they sinned against God. The Holy Spirit gives boldness to share the gospel. Peter Peter himself was very instrumental in the establishment of the church. When he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was given utterance to proclaim the gospel message in a tongue not familiar to him. But that was to deliver the gospel to others. The day of Pentecost was a celebration of the first fruits of God's promised harvest which became a symbol of the giving of the Holy Spirit, the down payment, if you will, the guarantee, the first fruits, if you will. Listen to what Constable says about this. Pentecost is a Greek word transliterated into English that means 50th. This feast fell on the 50th day after Passover. It was one of the feasts in which all the male Jews had to to be present at the central sanctuary. Jews who lived up to 20 miles from Jerusalem were expected to travel to Jerusalem to attend these feasts. Now I want you to take a look at the parallel of Jesus beginning his earthly ministry and the mission he sent his disciples on. This is is really neat. Um, Look at Luke chapter 3. Turn back to Luke chapter 3. And by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, um, the author of Acts is Luke. All right, just for those of you that may not have realize that. Luke chapter 3, when all the people, verses 21 through 23, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. What happens here? And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 2. Hopefully, you have your thumb there. And if you you don't, go back. It's not that far away. Luke chapter, I mean, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. You see the similarities? This may be something that you and I have not considered when it comes to the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
But him coming in human flesh meant that he needed dependence on the Holy Spirit. He needed the Holy Spirit's enablement. We tend to think because Jesus is God that he would not need the Holy Spirit, right? I think sometimes we, we almost box ourselves in and not realize, wait a second, Jesus was fully God, fully man. But Jesus in his humanity needed the Holy Spirit for ministry. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, look at what it says. In case you think, I'm confusing you here. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit... Wait a second, wait a second, let me read that again. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that same Jesus that died for our sins? Yes. Returned from the Jordan and was led by what? The Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Amazing stuff if you actually research Scripture. I've got an article, I'm telling you, it was just phenomenal, some of the connections that were made in there. Later in Acts, as the message of the gospel is shared with Cornelius, we see Peter say these words in reference to Jesus. Look at what he says in Acts chapter 10, verses 35 through 38. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Listen, believer, you need the Holy Spirit, and I do as well. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, we do as well. What are we trying to do apart from Him? I think many of us try to live Christian life without Him. And every time He convicts, we ignore. Every time He says, make a change here, you know you're in sin. We say, I don't want to hear it. I already know that I need to love my wife better, God. I don't need you telling me through the Holy Spirit. I already know I need to be a better father. I don't need to be reminded of that. I know I need to be a better pastor, God. But what about all the other people? This is how this happens in our lives. We have all these things that God calls us to do, and we go, you know what? I don't want to hear what you're saying. We're almost like the kids sometimes that go, I don't want to hear anything. This text is one that I've never considered before. But I'm telling you, once you start digging, it's amazing. Like, this sermon probably took me longer than I ever expected. Because once you go, as Pastor Rizzo say, down that rabbit hole, man, you just never stop. But there's just so much more to glean. There's so much more to dig. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. This is an incredible verse. I love this passage right here. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Listen, believer, Jesus in his earthly ministry needed the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that I believe, now when I've researched and looked through all these texts of Scripture, is the one that helped him in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's crying out to his Father in heaven. You see the comfort of the angels, but there's also the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit's enablement for his ministry, what makes you think that you and I don't? If we're going to share Christ with others, maybe it's important that we start by making sure that we tune in with the Holy Spirit first. This was a supernatural enablement that allowed Peter in Acts chapter 2 and the other apostles to share the gospel message with those that did not understand it for themselves. I want you to do some, some homework on your own at, time, at some point. Do a search on filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts. And you're going to find that it's not a lot to do with tongues, it's more to do with preaching the word boldly. The Holy Spirit's the one that gives us boldness. It's not manufactured from the inside out by some means of man. This is a supernatural working in Peter's life to where he becomes bold and he's no longer afraid like he was of that little girl that was standing by the fire with him. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says this, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? And they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's what the Holy Spirit did in their life. You want to know why you're not bold with the gospel? I can clearly connect it to Acts and say, you know what? It's because we're not filled with the Spirit. That's the biblical answer. This year, I'm going to be bold for Christ. Not because of what I can do, but the Holy Spirit is the one that's got to do the work. I'm not going to do this on my own anymore. I'm going to give it all to him and go, God, whatever way you want to direct this church, you go for it. I'm just going to jump in with whatever you want. Church, I want you to join me. I really do. I want us to be a Holy Spirit-filled church. When God calls us out on something, we go, you know what? We got it wrong. Let's go. Let's do this right. Acts chapter 13, verses 48 through 52. Look at this. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You know why they could endure persecution, believer? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I'm telling you, it's a tragedy and scary to think of what the church could endure if we had the persecution other countries face right now in America. Believer, ask yourself this question. Be honest with yourself. Don't, 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 don't have this pie-in-the-sky mentality when I say this. If someone were to take your house away tomorrow and you own a home, how would you respond? With boldness? With joy? Is that the word you're thinking? It says in the book of Acts that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Listen, believer, there's a victory waiting at the end. Believe me, Jesus does win. And he's not coming back to get murdered. He's coming back to conquer. But in the meantime, you and I have our own suffering that he promised us was going to happen on this earth. I don't know why we try so hard to avoid it every time. Each time there's a filling of the Spirit, there's an enablement to live out and proclaim the Word of God. If we want to be a Christ-centered church, we need to do the following, believers. Number one, we need to be motivated by Him. Motivated by Him. When we say Christ-centered, we mean everything we do and say is because we love Him and what He's done for us. It flows from Him. We make Him important in our lives by constantly remembering what He's done for us. Listen, believer, the moment that you and I say, you know what, the cross doesn't really matter that much. Yes, you know, we went through Christmas and all this. The moment that you and I go through all of these things and say, eh, doesn't matter to me, is the moment you don't value Jesus anymore. You and I ought to be eternally grateful for what Christ has done on our behalf. We need to hold Paul's perspective in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, here's something that might be a little controversial for you and I to take in, but here we go. It's a new year. You and I don't live ultimately for everyone else but Christ first. We live for him first and everything else flows from that. As believers of Jesus Christ, we make him the priority. Listen, believer, if you're living for your kids first, you're going to mess that up. They're going to be an idol that fails you big time. Last time I checked, all of us come from families that aren't so perfect. Remember, there's no perfect church, no perfect families. If you live your life to go, Jesus is what it's about, you're going to be a better husband, better father, better mother, better spouse, better sister, better brother, name it. You're going to be better in all these other areas for other people if you make him first. What makes the gospel attractive, believer, is a disciple who's wholly committed to Christ and willing to follow him no matter where he leads. Not the one that goes around complaining about how bad the world is and we're all doomed. That's not going to attract anybody to the gospel message. Look, if you want to tell everybody that you're a follower of Jesus 
And yet you want to complain about where everything is going and you just totally ignore what God's Word says? You're going to be a poor testimony. Do we all have anxieties? Do we all have fears? Absolutely. Did the disciples have anxieties and fears? Of course they did. But you know what? They had boldness. Why? Because they were filled with the Spirit. Jesus was that much of a priority to them. Jesus is to be the motive for the church. You know what motivates us as a church? Not our budget. Jesus does. You know what motivates you to share the gospel with other people? Jesus. He's that good that you want others to know him. You know what motivates you, parent, to get up in the morning and have to get up early for school? Jesus does. Because your goal is ultimately to reach your kids with the gospel. What are we doing all this for, believer? Why are we living life? Well, Paul had a very simple answer to that. To live is what? Christ. To die? Gain. We are motivated by what he's done because we're also enabled to live by the Spirit. Number two, enabled by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verses, verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The Christ-centered church is going to be one that is motivated by what Jesus has done and filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the word boldly to others. It is not under the control of someone's opinion in the church. It's under the control of the Holy Spirit and how he works through the word. Listen, you and I should be under the influence of only the Holy Spirit in our lives. The moment you and I feel like everybody else has to be the influence in our lives is the moment that we shift who takes priority. Should you care for the opinions of others in this life? Yes, you should. Everybody's? No. Should you try to please everyone? Never try that one. That's not good. It's not good for any of us. The moment you and I try to do that is the moment we're going to deny what God wants. The Holy Spirit is the one we ought to follow. And you're wondering, hey, well, what do you mean by following the Holy Spirit? Well, there's this thing called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In case you're wondering whether you're following the Holy Spirit, you might want to make sure you're in the Bible. A lot of Christians that try to say they're walking in the Spirit but don't read the Bible, they're not really following the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through the Word. They're inseparable. You see, you should not be under the control of some euphoric feeling, believer, or some song on the radio that changes everything in your day. And it happens. God may send that some days, okay? But if that's all that motivates you to live more holy, then that's a sad excuse for the Christian life. In this instance, he brings up in Ephesians, don't be under the influence of alcohol. It can be whatever it is in life. For people, it's different things. Don't be under the influence of other things in your life. Don't let them control you. Whether it's money, you know, whether it's substance abuse, whatever it is, whether it's a relationship, 
And people just control and dominate you because they've got a dominant personality. Don't let those things control your Christian life. There's a reason why Jesus was able to resist temptation. The Holy Spirit enabled him with strength. And he'll do the same thing for us. Because the Holy Spirit gave Christ the Word of God to remember. The Holy Spirit's the one who made Jesus valuable to you and me. And he's the one that convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You can't be a good disciple of Jesus Christ if you neglect to pray, if you neglect to read the Word of God. Those are disciplines you and I need. So many of us want to reach others for Christ, but we don't want the Holy Spirit to change what He wants to change in our lives. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. I want you to think about this for a moment. I know I mentioned this earlier. For Peter, as great as it was that Jesus spent three years with him, he never had his back until the Holy Spirit came along. That should stir you. That even in the presence of Jesus, he rejected him. But when the Holy Spirit filled him, he had boldness he didn't have when Jesus was around. You need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. Let's stop trying to do it without him. Conclusion. Why is Jesus not the center, believer? Why is Jesus not the center? Why is he not your main focus? Now, be honest. The media probably gets your attention a lot more than it needs to, right? Maybe this past year, and I don't know what category freaks you out the most. Some people, it's the virus. Some people, it's government control. Just pick something, all right? I'm sure all of us freak out over different things. But the question is, why are those things distracting us from what matters most? Do you find saving your life is more important than losing it for the gospel? Part of that of the Bible that you missed. You see, Jesus <laughs> made some extreme statements in the Word of God that I think we tend to ignore sometimes. Oh, we know them, we know them, we could quote them. But one of them is, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Another text says in the Gospels. You want the most fulfilled life, believer? Live it with Christ as your motive. He's your motivation. He motivates you each day. Let the Holy Spirit take control in your life and stop feeding the flesh on what it wants. You know you have that fight every day. You've already tried, and you know that you fail every time you try to do it yourself. Now, just want to make sure I finish with the question we started with. There's no perfect church. There's only a perfect Savior that we're to follow and commit to entirely. And wherever He takes us and leads us, we go and follow.